0: Hello and welcome back to the Trap One podcast. Um, this week we are talking about the new Waters of Mars novelisation by Phil Ford, who um, wrote the TV episode with Russell T Davis. And We're going to see if it stands up to the TV version and what our thoughts are on this. So, hello, I'm Cy and I'm joined
1: tonight by... Oh, I'm Lucy, sorry. just <laughs> putting my ori. Um, and also...
2: Uh, I'm Jason... UK Jason, if uh,
0: for familiar uh, listeners to the Trap One podcast. And yes, yeah, so we're back in 2009 um, when this was first broadcast on Halloween, I think, wasn't it? Or around Halloween, or was it a bit later? 15th of November, uh,
2: I believe it says. Oh, okay, it so was...
0: a little bit later. Yeah.
2: I think it's rumoured to be broadcast on. That's uh, right. Halloween because it fell on a Sunday or a Saturday and everybody said, oh, yeah, it's going to be Halloween. But then uh, it was actually the, the 15th of uh, November it was broadcast.
0: That's right. And um, it was always touted as the scary one of the specials and this one was going to knock your socks off. It was going to be very scary and a bit brutal. Not wrong there. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely was. And so notably for... What what I remember most about watching this on TV was it was the first time I'd been out for the day and just got in as Doctor Who started, and it was the first time I paused live TV. <laughs> Ooh! <laughs> and that has always stayed with me ever since, so the water supplies is always notable for that, at least.
2: <laughs> it was the second episode I watched in HD, so I watched it mm-hmm. on what was then the BBC HD channel because they had separate things because... I remember when they announced that they were starting to film it in HD. Being the geek that I am, and thinking, "Oh, well, that's an excuse to like go out and buy a new TV and get a Blu-ray player." <laughs> so i had I'd done all that for *Planet of the Dead*, and had a bit of a screening, uh, like kind of like admin mates round, like to watch *Planet of the Dead*, uh, and then another mate came round to watch this, and obviously it was quite dark. We kept the lights off, and like you say, it was, it's. Quite an intense episode. And then obviously, you got the preview for the end of the time at the end of the episode as well. And that was like quite exciting and anticipating to see, you know, what's uh, going to happen in David Tennant's final story. But we're
0: getting ahead of ourselves there.
1: Eh? hmm.
0: And Lucy, did you watch this one when it went out?
1: I did. I watched it in my, my small rented place um, on my elderly television. Uh, and it was the first um episode that i remember of the new series actually properly scaring me um i had i think probably as i was saying sort of before we started now as because i was watching the new series as an adult i didn't do the thing i would have done as a child which is if something if I didn't like something or it frightened me, I would still have watched it or run up the stairs to get away from it or hidden or something. But it would have been on. But at watching it as an adult, if I saw something that I really didn't like, I would just turn it off, and that was fine <laughs> because I didn't mind doing that. But I did watch this all the way through, and it um, just after it finished, um, there, there was I had a metal kitchen sink and the kitchen tap dripped. Dripped, and I nearly jumped out of my skin. So that's when I realised it really had it really had unnerved me quite as much. So, yeah.
0: So, was it an episode you both enjoyed?
1: Yeah, I thought it was good. I thought it was a good episode. It was obviously really nasty, um, but the cast were great, um, all very engaging. You engaged with the characters, even if you'd only just met them, which makes the sort of the the um, the jeopardy. Way more I think um, and it uh, it brought the doctor to his final point almost so yeah i did I do remember thinking it was a good episode at the time
2: uh i I absolutely loved it it's it's, uh, it's still one of my favorites it's my favorite of the specials that they did you know when they announced like that specials uh like year. Uh, I think it stands shoulders above, like, Planet of the Dead and uh, The End of Time, uh, even though, obviously, you know, that, that has its moments, but I think, you know, sometimes that is a little bit too long-winded and it has that Lord of the Rings-style ending, like, where it just keeps... doesn't end for ages. That's another ending after the ending. <laughs> yeah, but uh, this, I absolutely loved it. It's a cracking episode. It's, it's one of those that really kind of, like, sets off from the starting gate, like, from the moment it starts uh, and doesn't let you go. It's like a proper um, thrill ride, um, which, you know, obviously Doctor Who doesn't do that often, and it's got excellent... um, direction by graham harper which sadly it's the last episode he ever did isn't it i know he's still directing to this day but he never returned to doctor who after this which was i feel like was quite a shame because he's such a talented director and he put such a pace of it and it was interesting to see when started reading the book is phil ford going to be able to put that pace of the episode into the novel and i think he does a very very good job mm. of keeping it very very fast paced, uh, Yeah, but still fleshing out lots of areas of the the story that
0: you know you didn't get to see on on the television. Yeah, yeah. I think there's a um, a real sense of momentum in this episode right from the beginning, and the minute the Doctor realises where he is, and you get that sense of dread suddenly that something mm. bad is going to happen, but you're not quite sure what it is and I think that's one of the things that comes over really well in the book is those moments that um are in italics where the doctor is thinking something and so you're suddenly privy to to what's going on in his head and Mm. and you're there with him with having that sense of dread at the same time I thought that worked really really well
1: and the the prelude as well, which obviously you don't get on the television because you're, you're it's the um, the sense of the creature waiting for the disaster to occur so it can come to life again um is yeah really creepy and really sets it up well and it's sort of it is there is momentum to it but I think with a with a novel you can stretch things out a little bit and it doesn't matter quite so much. But I felt about that was the other thing I felt about the TV episode was that I, I've had some trouble adjusting to um, the lack of sort of episode cliffhanger, episode cliffhanger, episode of the the, the old uh, series, which is what I was used to. Um, and I sometimes felt with the new series that you'd get a plot that built up and was building up quite nicely. And then suddenly you get this avalanche of action down to the end. And by the end of it, I'd be thinking, well, just with this, it because it's driven all the way through. I felt like there was exactly enough plot and action to fit the episode.
2: Yeah, it's, it's a good point you raise there, actually, because I, I've sometimes felt that. Obviously, like you know, watching the classic series when I was a kid, and obviously being a fan, and obviously having to like rewatch all those stories. And then I had that kind of like adjustment when the new series came along, because they always like kind of said, "Well, the new cliffhanger is the pre-titles." sequence unless it's a two-parter. So that's where you're going to get your new cliffhangers. And, yeah, I felt kind of... There's quite a few new series stories that where you could easily say it's too quick, it's too thing, and that 45-minute format, they tried to cram too much into it and you could have easily expanded it, you know, into an hour-long episode or even into a two-parter, you know, which would be the equivalent to an old four-parter, you know, from the classic series. But I think one thing that the specials certainly benefited from, and certainly the Wars of Mars did when it was broadcast, is the fact that it was an hour long. Mm. So it had that extra 15 minutes to give it that time to like breathe more, mm. but also to build up that momentum more. Had it been 45 minutes, I don't think it would have worked as well as an episode no. or a story, because it would have been far too rushed. Uh, yeah, at an hour, it, it, it's just right. It's just right.
0: Yeah, and I think that just giving it that tiny bit extra gives it that breathing space so that you get to know the characters because the characters are really important in this story, particularly okay. Astrid. And um, we want to um, sort of um, find out about what... Uh, it's particularly good in the book, I think, where the Doctor is sort of saying, well, no-one will ever know about this, no-one will ever know you were in a relationship, no-one will ever know this, and all those things. So getting to know those characters and having that space, I think, works really, really well for it. Yeah, it does a really good thing. of like, It's quite
2: broad strokes that they do, and it's great that, obviously, we've then got the novelisation, which kind of like fills in those like, you know, extra little bits about the characters because I don't think that relationship between, is it um, oh uh, Yuri and um, one of the other crew members, is it Susie? Susie. I don't think that's quite... It's implied in the TV story. Yeah. But it's never kind of, like, addressed. But then here it's fully addressed, like, in the book and it's like, oh, you know, because it's like, oh, you're only 27, oh, they'll never know, you know, there's kind of like those snippets, but the novel, and what Phil Ford does, he does a great job of kind of like adding those extra touches. Um, Obviously, I read the novel first, and I haven't watched the story for quite some time, I think the last time I watched it was when the special Steelbook came out, which is obviously what I've got, you know, the Blu-ray Steelbook. So, i didn't want to kind of like, you know, watch the story first and then read the novel. I wanted to read the novel first and then see how they compared by them watching the TV story. And it's interesting, all that kind of like background that they feel really puts into the novel. And the perfect example is like, um, the Andy, who's the first victim of the flood as they, they call it because they yeah. don't never name it on screen on the, in the TV episode. I don't think, um, he, you know, he's a farmer. He comes from a farming background, ag- agricultural and stuff. And that's not really mentioned in the TV story. But what I saw is in the obituaries when the doctor's having those flash forwards of how he remembers what's happened to the the crew of Bowie Base One, is that it quickly flashes on screen, and that actually that kind of character stuff is actually very quickly on screen in the obituaries of the the characters, which I thought was a nice touch because it's nice to then have that expanded on
1: Mm. in the novel. Yeah, that it was there all the time, um, really, but you didn't see it. And like the bit with... Because at the end, when um, I think isn't... uh, From memory, because I haven't watched it uh, again, but isn't it that you see the two that escaped being interviewed on television at the end of the TV
2: version there's a there's a link that he quickly shows a website article and they're yeah. there holding hands and obviously it says like survivors you know interviewed uh and give their side of the story but um obviously then phil expands on that and says like from that the conspiracy theories arose because yeah it probably would do you know here's these three crew members who were suddenly on mars one minute yeah and then, like, you know, spoilers for the end, suddenly then are on Earth, and it's like people are then, like, you know, devoted conspiracy theories to it, as in, or, well, they were never there in the first place, and then it was all, like, kind of, like, fake moon landing and all that kind of stuff, and it's it's nice that, that that's
0: added into the novel
1: yeah.
2: because
0: it kind of, like, continues the, the story a little. Yeah, and, of course, we get that with, with Adelaide as well and yeah. the way that she – um, the mysterious death and finding the body – back on Earth when she should have been on Mars sets mm. her granddaughter up to be this big space ex- explorer. And so you see all the way through how time is being changed, even though this is a, a fixed point in time because mm. of the Doctor's actions and how time just sort of mends itself sort of around these events because they're so important. No, well, well, yeah, you, you're right because it, it does Like add things. And, and
2: obviously there's, there's kind of like that character building that the novel does because it's got the time even though it's quite a brisk novel mm. quite short it's obviously very much in that target style you know it took me an afternoon to read I was quite surprised at how quickly it took me to read it um but then it's 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 a good page turner because he really does keep that momentum going and that and that story going so you do want to like you know you get to the end of the chapter and you go Oh, go on, I'll read the next chapter, and then oh, I'll read the next chapter, and, you know, and and you continue, and I continued right to the end, mm-hmm. but that whole thing of like like you say with Adeline, um, and he expands up on that whole experience that she had uh, when she was young, which we get one scene, one brief scene in in the TV episode where she's in the loft and she sees the Dalek through the skylight. Like that that's hugely expanded on it in mm. in the book that's a that, that's like a couple of like that extra um like you know almost like a, a chapter in itself isn't it mm. and and the way it's written in italics because it's her like you know remembering what happened when she was like a, a young person and she's got obviously she's on a camping trip with her two best friends and then the you know the the Earth moves, and he's stolen, and it links into obviously the stolen Earth that story, and then it's the, all about them trying to get home back to the, their parents, and then they get a, a lift by the Dutch flower guy, you know, who delivers his flowers in but not in the way that you you know expected to. Um, it, it, it's a really great bit of just adding that more detail in to what is already a very very good story.
0: Yeah, that yeah. really was one of the highlights for me. I thought just having that little mini-adventure in the middle of another Doctor Who adventure that we all know and just sort of expanding um, really what was going on, on on the Earth during The Stolen Earth was a really good move. I thought that was was really, really nicely done. And again, that then fleshes out Adelaide as well. And she becomes a more rounded character because of those experiences that shaped her and made her the person that she is.
1: Yes, and she's a she's a particular um sort of adventurous girl, isn't she? She's she's a kind of down to earth sensible um she's she's fascinated in the way that children sometimes are when you think they would be scared. She's not scared, she's she's fascinated by what's happening and she is worried. Um and I I was slightly puzzled as to why the the, the dutch flower man had been smoking weed i don't know what that i assume he had been smoking weed this strange smell in the cab that they didn't recognize <laughs> um, but anyway um I, I admit that the um are we doing spoilers well we've got to the end haven't we so we must be doing spoilers yeah. the loss of her parents really annoyed me but that's just a personal thing um when it was just like and she never saw either of them again and i, I think i wrote something quite rude on my notepad at that point. but I'm not saying that it's not dramatically sound um, but it just personally irritated me a bit um, but yes, the, the idea and also the idea of the Doctor and his adventures sending out ripples to people that he might meet later on or might not meet at all but that there were other people there when the Earth was stolen and it had this terrible effect on so many of them Um that, that weren't even sort of thought about when it was happening. Because we were watching something else while that was happening. We weren't watching them.
2: Yeah, it's kind of like the, 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 the way it, it's that world building, in effect, isn't it? And it's expanding the world of Doctor Who ever more. Because, like, you know, you there wouldn't be the time to... Have, filmed those scenes or even if they did film those scenes they're probably the first kind of things that when you're looking at an edit of a tv episode you're gonna go well we don't really need that we can cut that flashback down and we can cut it just to where like she's in in the in the loft and she sees the dalek that's all that we need to convey that part of the stories and that's where like these novelizations really come into their own because they can expand the story, you know, and and give you that extra bit of like world building in there to like show that obviously, you know, the doctor's adventures do, like you say, have ripples across like, you know, everyone and, you know, everyone like got affected by the earth being stolen. And obviously then the Daleks invading, you know, in ways that you would probably never even kind of like, you know, think of whilst you're actually watching that particular episode. Mm.
0: No, and you can do that in prose so easily. You can tell those stories, yeah. and it'd be really interesting if someone now went and um, novelized The Stolen Earth and okay. sort of had that going on in the background somewhere or sort of expanded it in those ways so that you see other characters who are affected. So, I mean, on TV, we only saw really saw um, the family who um, get exterminated because they refuse to leave the house or they go back into the house after they're ordered in. And that and other than the rioting, that's really the only kind of further um sort of effects we see in that story. But there must have been so many other things going on across the world at that point. Oh
2: well, of course. You know you could easily like expand on I think it's the can't remember her name, the actress, but she was in EastEnders for quite some time, and and she's the one who gets disintegrated in front of oh, Sarah. Yeah, yeah. Um, you could you could do a whole chat on her, like, mm-hmm. like how she got to that point, like you know how she got like rounded up and everything, you know, and, and what she was thinking at the time, and then when she gets disintegrated. So yeah, it, it's just it just shows like you know that the target books are just are still relevant today. You know, even in this day of like you know we've. You can stream an episode from your fingertips. You you can like take it off your shelf on the DVD and the Blu Ray. You know you can watch it on your mobile phone. You can watch the clips on YouTube. But in this day and age, it shows that you know you can still redo a story, and the novel-
0: novelizations are still relevant. This is it, and always the best of the the original run of Target books were the ones that expanded the stories, and sometimes it was the incidental characters that were created almost for the book, like Shuey McPherson in um, The Dinosaur Invasion, who oh, you yeah. remember, you see, even now, that name sort of comes straight back. So all of those things, all those extra bits sort of sit with you, and it's always the authors who wrote more than just the story that was on TV. Those were the books that always sort of sat best with me, particularly as a, as a youngster.
1: Yeah, and also with this one, with the, as we said, the building up the characters, so you get a sort of potted biography of some of them, some of them more than others, but you you get to know about their families a little bit and their their immediate family and the, the fact that um, Andy's it with is is recently bereaved and that Adelaide desperately wants to go and see her grandchild who is appearing on the screen, and this is something that I think it's it's been said a few times that women who undertake exploration are asked about sort of abandoning their families more than male explorers are so it's it's sort of you know oh why would you do that well do you would you ask a male astronaut with children why they wanted to go into space um so it, it it kind of it felt like that was she was still driven to go even though she had daughter and then a granddaughter um and that that wasn't questioned really which was great because if she felt the if she felt that drive to explore then she was going to answer it
0: oh definitely and um, you get a sense I think all the way through the book of how hard Adelaide is and how hard it's been to get to Mars mm. and set the base up and do this and she's got to be tough and yes. that's why she won't wouldn't let anyone know about the relationship, even though it was sort of like an open secret on the base because that was, that was something that could jeopardise what they do and could put the rest of the crew in danger. Things like that, uh, again, because you get those those bits of interiority where you're inside her head mm. and you, you get that sense from, from her sort of all the time. I think that Bill Ford does a really good job of that.
2: Yeah, and there's there's another bit as well because it's kind of like highlighted. It, it's hinted and it's hinted a, a little bit through dialogue in the TV episode, and it, it's probably one of the only bit character bits that I was surprised they didn't. Phil really didn't expand on even more. It's kind of like that hinted thing that between Adelaide and the second in command Ed that they they kind of like almost wanted to get together, but she was a stickler for the rules. And, like, you know, it's those comments he says, like, when he's infected, like, oh, it would have been great, you know, but, you know, you would... You know, then obviously he blows up the shuttle and, you and you know, sacrifices himself for the greater good. And I'm surprised out of all the other character bits that we got in the novel that we didn't get Adelaide's thoughts on that. And I think it touches upon it slightly that she's a professional, she's a stickler for the rules... You know, because you know that's how you run a tight ship and stuff. But I thought perhaps Phil had missed a little bit of an opportunity to kind of just expand them on. You know that they potentially had feelings for each other, but they were like, "No, we're professional." Even though it's going going on with the crew, it's fine. But for the commander and the second in command, we cannot tolerate that. And you know, it's that kind of little bit of unrequited love, probably that we could have perhaps. He could have touched upon a little bit more. I think that's the only thing that I felt when I came away from the book and then watched the TV episode. I thought, oh, perhaps he could have just expanded on that just a little bit more, because like he's expanded on all the other bits.
1: I actually didn't didn't really notice that. I mean, I don't know. Perhaps it's just my sort of particular point of view. Perhaps she didn't. Maybe she didn't notice. Yeah, could be. It's but then
2: you'd think probably, she, he probably would have dropped in a line that's saying she, she never noticed his, like, kind of looks or advances yeah, or...
1: But he you does know. say at the end, you never, gave, you never gave him a chance, did you? So... Yeah.
0: <laughs> what do we think of his characterization of the Doctor? Because obviously the Doctor is the big, big character in this one and it's a really sort of important episode, I think, for, for David Tennant. So... We start with him coming straight off the planet of the dead um, with a lot on his mind and wants to come and think. And then he's dragged into this adventure and it almost feels all the way through like he shouldn't be here. It is almost as if he's...
2: I and mean, obviously, it's like he's... Obviously, he's trying to take a back seat. He's almost trying to like become like a background character. In his own, like, kind of like novel or TV show, but he can't quite bring himself to do it. And you, you get snippets of that through, like, you say, he does a wonderful job, Phil Ford, of putting those kind of like little thoughts in italics. So it's like, I really should go. He He knows what's coming. You know, he doesn't know the actual details because nobody knew. He just knew that on this day, Bowie Base 1 blew up in a nuclear explosion and killed all the crew, you know, and that it's a fixed point in time and I really just need to get going. So it's it's good that he kind of like puts those snippets in because obviously you can't kind of like relay that in prose with what an actor's doing on screen. Because uh, David Tennant does it really kind of like well, as in like that reluctance to like get involved, which is completely opposite to what the doctors normally like. And he so he's he's trying to act very out out of character almost to what he would normally do. He normally he'd be diving straight in and investigating, but then he kind of like gets swept up in it all, and then can't really help himself. And then even, like, you know, towards the end when he's got the spacesuit on, then that's when he has his epiphany uh, that he, you know, he can save them. You know, much to the, uh, the um, you know, detriment of, you know, what Time then decides to, to do. Um, but, yeah, it, it's, it's good that Phil is able to, like, put those snippets in because usually you don't kind of, like, get much of the Doctor's thoughts when... Well. Um, you read in a book because obviously the doctor's the doctor and it's kinda of like he's kinda of like the ethereal even though he's the main character, he's kinda of like he's he's up here, isn't he? Whereas like you use the companions to to do that kind of work in a in a novel or in a story. Um but you haven't got really any companions in this tale, have you? So the doctor has to like kind of like step in and do two roles effectively in, in the book.
1: I found him much more irritating in print than I did on the screen. <laughs> um, I assume it's something to do with the fact that David Tennant has such amazing charisma that he can be a complete ass, and you sort of, you don't forgive him necessarily, but you kind of go with it. And I found his, his sort of the way he has of rattling on, um, was much more irritating on the page than it was in person. And I dearly wanted Adelaide to slap him at several points. Um, but it, yeah he's there were those moments and also the moments where so he um somebody takes his spacesuit off him and he it says that he knew he shouldn't but he let her take it um and that's so it's almost like like you say in spite of himself he's getting involved um Yes, no, that was the main thing. The main thing was that I found him much more irritating in print than I did on the screen, (laughs) Uh, which possibly has to do with with David Tennant being a a tremendously charismatic actor who can carry off a performance which is on the edge of being deeply annoying and yet still somehow make it likeable. But you can see how... uh, 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 But from the beginning, he's sort of he's got this front of humour that he's putting up, isn't he? Because he's, you know, what's your name? What are you doing here? Fun, and you're being held at gunpoint by an extremely serious person. Why would you say that? Um,
2: It's it's interesting because when you kind of like look at the story, it shares quite a bit of similarity to the one of the stories from the previous season. Midnight, with that being like a solo 10th Doctor story and not effectively having a companion in it, so he kind of like plays kind of like both roles in the story, and he does come across as a little bit irritating and arrogant in that story as well and it's like when I was thinking back to obviously once I'd read the book and then watched the episode again it's almost like Midnight Turn left, and then the waters of Mars kind of like form. I I think, and I, I've never seen this theory anywhere. And it's kind of, like, I don't know whether I've, you know, anybody else has come up with this theory. But it's it's almost like the kind of like a trilogy of stories where the Doctor really kind of like messes up, and it's not through any fault of his own that he kind of like gets a result at the end. You know, he it's his arrogance in Midnight that kind of like causes the 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 passengers and the the crew of the the explorer ship to, like, kind of turn against him and kind of, like, go on Skye's side, even though she's the possessed one, and almost throw him out of the airlock until it's the air hostess who kind of, like, realises at the last minute. So it's kind of like... And then you've got, obviously, turn left, which gives you an insight into what would happen truly if the Doctor, like absolutely lost and wasn't around and then shows you all the ramifications of that and then you've got the waters of Mars which kind of like then takes it to a next level and shows you that if the Doctor continues to be kind of like this arrogant personality and think that the laws of time don't mean anything to him at all and he can do what he wants, then it's going to have serious ramifications so it's almost as if that his character art through those three stories are kind of like and then it reaches its kind of like climax to the actions that he then does at the end of Waters of Mars. So I, I don't know whether anybody's ever like said that. They feel like that's like a trilogy of stories of like the Doctor really like messes up in a way. And this is like how he messes up. And it leads him to where it leads him into the end of time then.
0: Yeah, no, that's brilliant. I've not not seen that anywhere, but that really fits. And of course, we're very close to to midnight here because he doesn't ever quite charm Adelaide at all no. does he she's no. always very skeptical and very um she's yeah she doesn't necessarily like him although uh, particularly because of his arrogance and his, his the information that he's got about what's going to happen that he won't won't tell us that obviously does not sit well with with a character like Adelaide so they're they're butting heads straight away and I, I think one of the my favourite parts of the book was when the Doctor comes back and he's being the Time Lord Victorious and you see him through Adelaide's eyes and you see that change in him through her and how she doesn't like it whatsoever. She is not charmed by this. She is not having this, particularly after what he's told her that they don't get out. Uh I think that was, was a really fantastic piece of writing from from Phil Ford there. That that's all conveyed in um in Adelaide's thoughts. So I thought, yeah, I I was really on board with that. I thought that came over really, really well.
1: Because the main thing is that he's making it about him and it's not about him. It's about them. It's about the people who will die. Um two of them survive, the third does not, the others are beyond that and get vaporised and really it's I think I wrote that several times on my notes as well is that it's not about him what would happen still happens whether he's there or not it would have happened um, and potentially he makes Adelaide make the decision to kill herself twice
0: Because she doesn't
1: know she's going to make that decision. She's capable of making it. She would have made it. We know she would have made it because the base got destroyed. It always got destroyed. But he's telling her that she's going to murder her crew and kill herself. And then she has to, she feels forced to, take the decision to do it again, having already made that, come to terms with that decision. She then has to she feels she has to do it again. So he's actually made it worse. Although it's lovely that the two were saved and that's brilliant. It's really not about him at all.
2: Yeah. And it's interesting because you could probably say it's almost like the doctor kind of helps her make that decision again for the second time based on how he talks to her when they, he rescues them in the TARDIS and then they land right outside her house. And it's those kinda of, that's terminology that he uses, that the little people. You know, yes. are, and that's really out of kind of like quite insulting, like, you know, I know the doctors can be quite like, you know, offhand with how humanity is, you know, and quite derogatory, you know, about like, you know, stupid apes and all that kind of stuff, you know, and I don't know why I like the species as much as I do, you know, when when they really do something wrong. But to like say that to somebody that you've just saved and that kind of like it amplifies the arrogance in him that, oh, I can do what I want. I, I'm now a god. And obviously, it brings out that god complex even further. And I think that is probably the moment that solidifies it for Adeline when she said, you know, she sees the little people. Is that how you see us? You know, and then I think that's like probably the defining
0: moment where she then decides to do
2: the action of what she then does.
0: Yeah. And that moment where she turns to him and just says, you should have left us there. Yeah. It's absolutely brilliant. Yeah. But it's true. And because we've heard the doctor say so many times that in all his time, adventures in time and space, he's never met anyone who's, who doesn't matter who, who, yeah. And we hear that time and again. So to hear him, hear him say things like that is, is really, yeah, we could really see the changes very, very quickly in him.
1: And he makes it even worse by saying, Oh, should I go back and save them then, your parents? As if they're just like Ugh,
0: horrible. Yeah, and we we're not used to that that kind of arrogance from the doctor. This is what the master does. This is what other time travelers do. But the doctor's always been so careful and just to have that little glimpse of what could happen if like donna's always said there's no one there to stop you then this could go out of control and indeed this is where the time lord victorious sort of series went then to show sort of further consequences of this and what what could happen if the doctor went rogue
2: yeah and it's kind of like the the seeds of it are kind of like sown in the fires of pompeii aren't they when, like, obviously Donna, like, obviously you know, I can't do anything at a fixed moment in time, and it's almost, well, just save one, just save one person or just save one family, and obviously, the, you know, he's persuaded then to make that choice, and then you can probably then see that that probably then leads him up to then this point to go, like, well, I'm the last ta- last of the Time Lords. These rules do not apply to anyone except for me and because I'm the last they know obey me, I don't obey them anymore. So I can do what I want. And it's like that like you say, it's an arrogance that we very, very rarely see like in in the character through, you know, the whole history of the show. Uh and it's it's quite jarring, you know, and it's it's jarring in the TV episode. But I think Phil Ford does a very, very good job. Of making it even more jarring with how, like you say, that brilliant uh, juxtaposition of like how Adeline sees him, you know, and it's like the arrogance, the way his his face has changed, the way his mannerisms have changed, the way he his eyes have changed, you know. She says that there's a change in he in how he looked at us, you know, and I think that it's the it's a brilliant way of of putting that
1: in prose and she asked him to help and he said no and then he changed his mind and he was going to do it on his terms, not not because he wanted to help them really but out of arrogance when she asked him to help them in the airlock and he said no and she let him go and then he came back, changed his mind
0: <laughs> Yeah, and I think that whole sort of little um, section of the doctor thinking it through and um, working out sort of through his head all the things that he'd seen that would lead up to this that made him change his mind. So sort of going back to his confrontation with Davros in The Stolen Earth and thinking about what Carmen was going to tell him, thinking about the Time War and how he he ended the Time War. Um, all of that sort of going through his head at that point is again really nicely done it sort of makes it all sort of joined up Um, and again this is where the book can win out over the TV series because you can see that series of thoughts you can see all of those things go through his head and then see him turn round and say no I'm going I can do this I can do what I want no one can stop me and it's that bit where he'd won the time war and now he understood that his victory had been more than survival it's just that, again, that little bit of arrogance in him that um, now there's no one to
1: stop him. And the expectation of gratitude as well when when they get back and the the, um, the girl, who's is her name? Mia? You, uh, Mia. Mia. Mia, yeah, yeah.
0: sorry. Mia, she's,
1: yeah. she's just horrified and shocked and, and, and in shock and you has to go look after her and he does. But the expectation that Adelaide and the other two will be grateful to him for rescuing them when he's, when he said he wouldn't do it and then he would do it and now he's like, uh, as if they owe him that. I feel that that's in him as well. He's like, well, why aren't you thanking me? Why aren't you happy about this?
0: <laughs> exactly. And we we know from the Doctor of Old that he would have looked after anyone who was having sort of those feelings at that moment. He'd have been compassionate and his companion would have looked after them sort of the whole lot, but because he's, again, it's another way of showing that he's, he's not quite right, is that he hasn't got that compassion for them and he hasn't got that comfort and sort of all those words that he usually has where he sort of makes things better it's yeah, it's sort of a twisted version. I yeah, I really like that.
2: Yeah, and, and obviously he's quite confrontational, isn't he? there's a great line here. You know, as the countdown for like um, you know the the destruction of the base is, is starting, and obviously he's sending gadget out with the key to like get the TARDIS to come back, and obviously they're unaware of that. But you know, Phil writes here: "The Doctor burned with fury. Adelaide, I will." If I have to fight you as well, I will. And that's quite confrontational. You don't usually get that from the doctor. Like, you know, usually, you know, he's always quite helpful and you'll only be confrontational mm. um, against the monsters or the villains. So to be confrontational against like, you know, one of the effective like pseudo companions of the story is is a huge change.
0: Yeah, and someone that earlier in the story, he's said he admires, yeah, and knows that she was an inspiration. Uh, that's yeah, it's quite jarring at that point. I guess I think from what what we're saying here is that everyone felt it, this story translated to to book form sort of really really well.
1: Yeah. Yes, I yeah, think definitely.
0: Um,
2: like I said, you know. The TV episode is, is probably you know one of my favourites out of that run of David Tennant episodes, and you know, you know Grain Harper's direction, you know the way the the story rollocks along, and Phil literally does a very very good job of translating that to the page. I was quite surprised when I like probably was getting to about literally about halfway through the book, and I'm thinking, hold on, we're quite near the end of like you know the the story here. But then he kinda of like really kinda of like just without slowing the story down, kind of like expands on the whole rush to evacuate. And then obviously then obviously you're expanding then the doctor's decision then to like, you know, stay and then change like, you know, time and and the fixed point in time. So it kinda of like it rolls up to like you know a great point like halfway through, and you think it. We're well, more than halfway through the TV episode, from what I could recall. And then obviously, when I watched the episode back, I was like, "Yeah, yeah, yeah, it do- does." But then he does a great job of like expanding probably the last twenty minutes of the episode into like the second half of the book, where usually you'd probably get. Quite an expansion of the early part of a story because mm-hmm. that's where you're expanding all the characters. You perhaps like throwing in more of an introduction of them, you know, to give them more of a background, and then you'd probably find yourself like kind of like really rushing the end. Like you're probably in the last like you know thirty fifty pages of it, you know, which sometimes like you know Terence sticks did if he if he like did a very like basic script to novel adaptation you know, even though they were still great books, but, you know, he'd kind of, like, rush to the end. Um, but, yeah, he it, it does an absolutely brilliant job of, of putting um, the story to the page. And also, I, I loved all the expansions. There was a couple of things that, obviously, you get the expansion about the Ice Warriors, which I thought was a very, very nice touch, which mm. isn't in... The TV episode at all.
0: No, and I think a lot of people at the time felt there should have been a mention of the. And there was, was a sort of small mention, wasn't there? Almost. He
2: mentions Ice Warriors when they go to see the glacier, doesn't he? Yeah. He just drops it in, but Adelaide just doesn't even like, you know, go, you are. Mm-hmm. <laughs> she just doesn't even like, you know, recognize like the name or anything. It's kind of like just as if it's just name dropped for fan purposes, like, you know, for us to go, ooh, squee, mm-hmm. you know, whilst we're watching <laughs> it on TV um but yeah he really expands upon that because um she takes him to see this like artifact that they have dug up which has, has um uh, Martian uh inscriptions on it doesn't it
0: that's right yeah. and um one of the one of the crew who the doctor couldn't work out why she was there is the translator and is the linguistic expert and then that makes sense because she's trying to um translate this untranslatable um piece of of writing that they've got
1: that says don't come here it's terrible we're all dying yes <laughs> it adds yeah. to the te- which adds attention yeah. because as he says it was there all. they were trying to tell you it was there all the time and you didn't know i i did like the way that the um the sort of the introductions were dropped in steadily throughout the story so you didn't feel like when you were standing in the room at first, oh, this is this person and this is that person and this is this person. You got to know them as they appeared. Um, and I also thought the description of the of the transformations was absolutely brilliant and really creepy um, and definitely called to mind the appearance of the people on the screen, what they looked like. I thought that was really successful um the the way that the the effect of the water on them and how they looked like bodies that had been floating in just the um but that and the and the effect of the water breaking through the um the doors and the windows and just finding a tiny little crack in the that that wouldn't have affected them otherwise and and the way that the doctor talks about water being patient uh because we know it will wear down a valley eventually if there's enough of it um over time and that it can wait and so at that point I couldn't remember and I was wondering whether somebody else had got infected already but actually it was just that it was breaking into the dome but I thought all that was really well managed too and the fact that you got the um you got some sense of what was happening inside the the people who'd been transformed as well so the one who's in the sick bay and the, the thought comes into her mind so much water, and it's not her mind anymore. But that you get that that sense as well of the transformation of them.
2: Yeah, it's an interesting point you raised there, Lucy. And obviously, you touched upon it. Sign I didn't make the connection at first, and what what you've said is, is just kind of like sent a light bulb off in my head because he said, obviously she's there and people think she's there to help out with the, you know, the gardening and and the, you know, just general development. But yes, she's the linguistics expert. And obviously one of the strengths for the TV episode, I thought is the fact that you don't know any background about the flood. So they seem more creepy, more scary because you don't know about them, and they don 't talk then there's some like kind of like kind of like weird sounds and, and screaming from them, yeah. but they do not talk at all they 're not even referred to as the flood they're just like literal like kind of like water zombies who are, will always chase you and always get you and that's a great concept for the screen, but what Phil does. In the book, he has a scene, doesn't he? When Maggie, who's the main one who's affected, who's now I get the connection. She's the linguistics expert, and then she's the one who then talks to them, or the flood talks through her, yes, and tells them we we are the flood. We will you know come after you, and we want to take over the earth, basically. So it's that kind of scene. I get why that scene probably isn't in the TV. Episode because one, it probably would lessen the impact and the scariness of the, the monsters, and two, it would probably slow down the pace of the episode. But again, it's that lovely torch of uh, an ex- another expansion into the book to give you more background behind the actual, you know, this week's monster of the week.
0: Just that little insight into the thought process of the flood sort of all the way yeah. through and I think the prologue is one of my my favorite bits of the book. I thought that was really nicely done and really was an eerie and odd and creepy start to to what is a, a creepy novel generally um, and we have a guest reading of that which we will have now.
3: they waited in the cold and the dark. For measureless centuries they had waited, for millennia, for years counted in the millions. Time for them had no meaning. They did not grow old and die. They did not become restless in their long quiescence. They endured their dormancy with patience. This dead world that had once been a jewel of life in its solar system, of eight major planets, was not their origin that was lost in the depths of time and space, beyond the oldest of memories. They had traveled through constellations carried by chunks of rocks, rocks that brought life to some infant worlds and death to others. Then, as now, they had waited in icy slumber. Now in the depths of this lifeless world that had once become home to intelligent and fearsome civilizations, they lingered in suspension, in readiness for the beings that would come to release them. They needed no strategy for the violation and invasion that would follow. In all the universe, there was one element on which all flesh biologies depended. Water. When the flesh returned to this dry, dusty world, they would look for water to sustain them as they must. And all it would take to begin was one drop. So they waited for millions of years, time for all but the most hidden traces of past civilization to erode, completely under the relentless forces of wind-driven sand and time itself. Then, finally, the flesh
0: returned. So that was Joe Ford there. You haven't heard that yet, but we'll put that in later, in post. But um, all of those little bits where you just get the moments where it says they're holding on and they're waiting and they're patient and they want, the, they want the planet Earth because there's so much water there that they can infect. And that's, yeah, a perfect motivation. They just want more. And I, I, there was the moment I remember where it was one of those moments where you think, no, 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 where you, you first hear about the water breaking through the outer shell of the shuttle, Mm. And then you know that they're doomed. And that, again, that's a w- wonderful bit from, from Phil Ford, who just sort of puts that in and you just know that they're doomed. There's just a tiny crack and it's found its way in.
1: Because that's what water does. Yeah. Anyway. it also Yeah, we've you had
0: houses. There. Everyone's had houses like that.
2: <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> Suddenly you've got a leak from somewhere and it's like, oh, where's that come from? <laughs> But yeah, it's it's a great way, and obviously the the way they obviously they describe the humans, they call them the flesh. I mean, that's a really creepy kind of like way mm-hmm. of being being described. You know, we're the flood; you are the flesh. You know, we will use you to get you know to what 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 we want. You know, which is to get to the planet Earth. It's a fantastic like you know um, like bit of writing there, and, and a you know just just that little extra touch in there that like, gives it that extra creepiness.
0: Yeah, and those moments, of course, when everyone realises that they've drunk the water on the planet and does that mean they're going to be infected and that that not knowing straight away if that's going to affect you, whether eating the carrot that's been watered by by the water that sets it all off, mm. that's the start of it. So does that mean everyone else is going to be affected? Have they drunk the water? Have they done this? And so it's that extra bit of tension again that you can get into the pros where everyone is suddenly thinking well did I do this and there's a bit where Adelaide is sort of thinking through what she's done and ticking it off and saying no I didn't do that I didn't have that and I'm okay and all the other crew members going through the same thing again yeah it's quite it's quite a it's a very very quick scene in
2: the TV episode where they literally go to check the filters and then double check like obviously Andy's like video recordings of like oh well you know there's a fault on this filter but it's only it came through today and so then they're they're quite relieved that you know oh right it's okay, it it only started today with the fault of that filter on pumped free or whatever it was, but again it's it, again it's that tension isn't it and that's put into that section of the book, of like you know is have we been drinking the water that is going to infect us? Is it sitting in us? And it's kind of like, you know, certainly f- from like, given the, the pandemic and the COVID situation, it's probably, it touches an extra nerve that doesn't it? You know, have I got COVID? Have I
0: transmitted it to somebody yeah. else? Or have maybe? I had that contact with someone <laughs> who's got it and all yeah. of that? Mm-hmm. So did you have, I, I think we've also sort of, sort of touched on this, but did you have particular moments that were, were absolute highlights in this book for you?
1: Um, I think uh, I I really like the character of Adelaide and the way she was drawn and she fitted very... Obviously, it was excellent casting. Um, she was just fabulous on television because she always is. Um, Lindsay Duncan is an amazing actress and brilliant and, and I felt that the character fitted... Um, perfectly and was this sort of grave, determined woman who was absolutely going to do the right thing um, at cost of her own life and was prepared to make that decision, appalling decision, on behalf of her colleagues as well. Um, I thought that the it's a weird thing to choose for a highlight, but I thought that the the description of the 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 people who'd been transformed was absolutely brilliant and again really conjured not only did it conjure up what we'd seen on the screen but i think if you hadn't seen it you would imagine what it looked like just as effectively by reading it and the whole way that the that he sort of let out the tension and then drew it back in again constantly throughout the book worked really well
2: yeah, I'd say that. That obviously, the the you know, she's effectively probably you know next to the doctor, she's the main character, isn't she? And uh, he does a wonderful job of obviously expanding her character. She, obviously, she gets the most character like development and background. You know, I loved the the filling in of the whole thing of of her childhood, which again like, just gives her that. It gave her that emphasis to go out into space. You know, it, that lovely bit of dialogue between. Her and the doctor, like, you know, when when I saw the Dalek, I knew I then wanted to go out and search for it, you know. And obviously, the doctor says, Well, you know, but not for revenge, you know. But why, why, why would I ever want revenge, you know? and, And to expand upon that whole thing with that whole section of her, like, you know, going from like the guide camp out in the forest and like, you know, getting the lift with the lorry driver to get back to London to then try and, like, you know, get back to her parents and do it with her two friends. That was a wonderful, like, bit of, like, extra exposition that, you know, like I said, that's probably the first couple of... If it was ever filmed or ever in the script, that's the first thing that, you know, you'd automatically go, you know, we're we're over 60 minutes here, we've got 60 minutes, let's get rid of that, you know, because we don't need it, you know. And that was a great bit of writing there from Phil. I love the little touches, Obviously, he expanded more about the you know the ice warriors and stuff. And as a fan and loving the ice warriors, I loved yeah. all those kind of like hint drops of, of that civilization, of how long they were there, and then yeah, they finally like you know left the planet. And one of the reasons it was pure you know because of the flood, you know, and obviously because they're from northern hemisphere of Mars, you know. Again, there's that you know kind of like gag about you know well you know northern. Even Mars has a has a has a north, you know, kind of thing, and you've got obviously all that kind of stuff that's put in there. And again, obviously, the way he keeps up the pace of the story, which is a probably quite a difficult thing to do, when you've got such a pacey episode that is so fast-paced and so kind of like edge of your seat, it's sometimes difficult to translate that from a visual point of view to then to put it into like a narrative prose point of view but he does an absolutely brilliant job of doing that and i just loved all the little extra touches because he really did expand on the story and it's a great fantastic novelization of a brilliant one of my favorite episodes
0: yeah i can't disagree with that i think his prose is excellent. It's very simple and effective in very much the Terrence Dick style, and he can write with real pace and, and momentum. And I think, yeah, it's an absolute triumph of a book, actually, and one that I wasn't expecting to like as much as I did. I think I came in not expecting a great deal for some reason. I'm not entirely sure why, but he really triumphed with this one, and I'm I'm really impressed. And I don't know about... The other the two of you, but I'd like him to do Into the Dalek now <laughs> and see what he makes yeah. of that. So I'd love to see another book from him.
2: Yeah, that, that would be a great uh, one to do. And again, you know, obviously, you know, he, he's, uh, you know, he was co creator of Wizards and Aliens with Russell yeah. T. Bailey, so he's got that good working relationship. I'd love to see Phil Ford come back because he's a fantastic writer. Um, you know, and obviously, you know, thinking ahead, uh, you know, let's hope we can get him. Back for like the soon to be shooting series two, which I think starts in November, and and that kind of stuff. Oh so, yeah, I, I love Phil Ford stuff. Uh, it's just a shame that he didn't write more during the 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 run of Russell T Davies. Yeah, and, I
0: think he was so busy doing the Sarah Jane Adventures at the time, wasn't he? That he was yeah, writing yeah. a couple of scripts a year for for that series and um, running the show. So yeah. he was, yeah. That took his time, so this almost always felt like his reward for doing that, that you get to write for Doctor Who, and then obviously Stephen Moffat brings him back a bit later as well, which was good. Yeah, because didn't he write Dreamland, one of the
2: animated episodes as well? Didn't
0: he, yeah, which was on around the same time as this, wasn't it? Yeah, 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 that's a cracking tale as well. Mm -hmm. That's what I always forget about, that one, so...
2: It's it's only because it's it's on the special set, so it's oh, wow. on there with the mm-hmm. Infinite Quest as well. So you've got you've got even more like uh, you know, David Tennant episodes for like his unofficial final season.
0: <laughs> what about you, Lucy? Would you like to see him back to do another one?
1: Oh definitely, yeah. If it could involve a few fewer um uh dead brilliant women, that would be nice. But yes, otherwise yes.
0: Excellent. Well, I think this one has gone down very well with our panel this week, which is really good. So, my one, my one last question is, um, if if you had a magic ball and could make um, make the editorial decision for for next year's target books that aren't the free books that are coming, which new series story would you most like to see novelized, and why? See, I'm putting you both on the spot now. I can see lots of... <laughs> I don't, I'll let Lucy go first. I
1: don't know that I feel qualified to make that choice because there's quite a lot of the new series that I haven't watched. Um, I dropped in and out towards the end of Matt Smith's tenure and I watched next to nothing of Peter Capaldi's um, tenure. I was saying the other day that I watched Heaven Sent once, but I had a root canal infection at the time and was in absolute agony, and so it's possible I wasn't giving it the attention that it deserved, <laughs> anything the attention it deserved at that point. Um, and I only really came back in with the Flux season, so I don't have. Um, actually, no. Let's say Legend of the Sea Devils because that's been dumped on by everybody from a great height, and I really enjoyed it. But I did feel that it needed more. Obviously, there were serious constraints on what they could do and how many people they could have and everything. And it's amazing that it got made at all. But I'd like to see that one um, fleshed out a bit so we have more background of the story of the pirates and the missing crews and and that kind of thing. So, yeah, I'll choose that one.
0: Good choice.
2: Uh, I was going to say The Time of the Doctor uh, because um, it's a bit of a mess of a final episode for Matt Smith, as good as it is because obviously Matt leaving a lot sooner than what Stephen Muff <laughs> expected, he tries to cram like his Planned for series of story arcs, all into like kind of like one hour long Christmas special, mm. and it doesn't quite work. So, but obviously you've got the Tales of, Trends of the Lore, um spin off book that they did that kind of like covered the kind of like same ground. So, I'm not going to say that one. I'm going to go with the beginning of the eleventh Doctor era, and I'm going to say the eleventh hour. I think would make a cracking novelization. That whole kind of like you know. You could start it with the, the 10th Doctor regenerating, then obviously, you know, you could use that final scene at the end of the time where he's then crashing Geronimo. You'd lead that into your book. You could give an insight into how the Doctor's feeling, you know, with his his new, like, you know, body, his new mind. You know, it's whirring away. You could probably play a lot more with the time issues with the Doctor, like, missing Amy and getting the... You know, time's wrong, and I just think you could expand on the prisoner zero uh, subplot uh, a bit more as well. I think it would be a
0: great novel. That yes, that was the one I was going to choose. So now so... I have to choose something else. <laughs> so I'm going to go. I'm going to go with. Um, I think school reunion would be oh, a great book good choice, because. Yeah. I think you could tell a great story from Sarah's perspective as well yeah. as the doctor's perspective. And I think that insight into Sarah Jane Smith and the life that she hasn't had, I think would be really, really fascinating to read. And I think there's a lot that you could do to expand that, that story and take it sort of to another, another level sort of on top. So, I mean, there's so many characters that you can do perspectives from in that story. So you've got Rose, obviously, with her, um, seeing what could happen to her. You've got Sarah Jane coming back. You've got the Doctor seeing his oldest and best friend and, and having to deal with Rose as well. And Mickey and Cana, you, yeah, you've got lots uh, to do there, as well as expanding obviously the Krillotanes and all of that plot as well, which you could take in lots of... Yeah, you could you know, do the whole as, infiltration of the school as well, yeah, like, you know. Oh, yeah, you could set it months before it starts and all yeah. of that. Mm-hmm. And even have the teacher who, who finds the lottery ticket. Yeah. <laughs> all of those things that the doctor set up before he, he turns up. You know, so yeah, I mean, there, there's a lot. I think there's a script that again could have done with another fifteen minutes, maybe. Yeah. And I think there's a lot you could play around with on that. Is Toby Whithouse still on Twitter? Shall we? Yeah, shall we Can always we let send him, him know?
1: <laughs> the boy who <laughs> blows up the school, seeing his friends, his schoolmates turn strange because he's not allowed chips. Oh, yeah, yeah. 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 Mm-hmm.
2: Of course, because he's not eating the chips because yeah, he's trying to lose exactly. weight. Yeah. That's the reason
1: he can save the day is because he's not allowed chips and everybody else has them. But that's sort of taking from what it reminded me very strongly of the demon headmaster at that point, not just yes. of Anthony Head's performance, which is exactly the right level of scenery eating, um, but, uh, and, and very, very creepy, but also the sense of the children, the, the, the sort of the children... I was. I think if it had longer, it would have been nice to see some of the children realizing that something wasn't right, because they're all yeah. sort of apart from him, and that's because he's not gonna have the chips. They're all sort of going along with it, and it's like things aren't changing. They would notice, but they're sort of because we've got the Doctor and Rose and Sarah Jane there. They're sort of subsidiary to it, and it would be nice to have it from their perspective as well. Like, who is this weird new bloke who keeps saying strange things, teaching the science, and why do the dinner ladies keep exploding? And well...
2: <laughs> 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 and there's that scene, isn't there, where one of the children is sent to see the headmaster, and it's obvious, it's obvious that she's been sent there as, like, you know, lunch or whatever. because yeah, she has no and You can expand on that with kids going missing and, and all the rest of it, but it not being investigated by the police and, like... Reasons, perhaps the Krill were you know in the police force as well. You could
0: really like spam that like story out there. There we you? go. Well, there's at least a two hundred page target book <laughs> from that. <laughs> Toby, you can have that on us. That's fine. <laughs> so, thank you very much, Jason and Lucy. Um, where can we find you on the internet if anyone wants to look you up?
1: Okay, um, I'm I'm clinging to the wreckage of Twitter <laughs> because I can't swim. Um, so. <laughs> Uh, and uh, I am at Lucy McCall on, on Twitter and uh, various versions of my name on Instagram and Mastodon occasionally and still Facebook and I occur on other people's podcasts in what US Jason calls the Joe Ford Expanded Universe. <laughs> um, so I've been on uh, Hamster with Blunt Pen Knife and hope to be again. Um, I've just read another book for Hamster Book Club that I didn't enjoy hell as much as this one, so we'll see about that um and i've been on a couple of dave's uh kettle and some string podcasts and although it feels um i feel a bit sheepish about saying that i write fan fiction after after reviewing such a, a really good book i do have some stories on um com, which is also known as uh oh what's it called a teaspoon and inquiry mind um I gather you have to choose carefully on that, but the, uh, the the preferences are clearly displayed. And my stories have absolutely no sex, but they do have scones. <laughs> so if you want to read about um, adventures that I think Kate Stewart had when she was a little girl, or a prequel to um, a sequel to Battlefield, or a prequel to Dragonfire, you will find them there.
0: Brilliant. Thanks, Lucy. And what about you, Jason?
2: Uh, like Lucy and I think all of us were still uh, clinging to the wreckage and the uh, sinking ship that is Twitter. I still have yet to download the app, uh, the update, so I've still got the blue bird <laughs> on my uh, my phone screen, and hope it doesn't die. <laughs> um, yeah, so I'm on uh, Twitter as January Max seventy two, where obviously you know I just tweet out ramblings. Um, I'm also on YouTube as Bearded Geek Toy Reviews, where I review like um, geeky stuff like action figures, uh, Doctor Who, Star Wars, Marvel, DC, anything like that. And also you'll find me on uh, Instagram as well, uh, Django Mac, and also Bearded Geek Toys on there as well.
0: Yep, and you'll find me still on Twitter as at Cy underscore Heart. And I've just started moving, and I've just started a Blue Sky account, and you can find me as at Sciheart on there, along with Trap one who have moved over there too. So you'll find Trap one on um, Blue Sky and Mastodon and on Twitter as at Trap one underscore. And I believe Trap 1 will be returning shortly with more reviews of Target books. Kablam is already in the can and out there. And you can have a listen to that. And um, we'll be reconvening for the remaining books in this release series. So, yes, thank you very much for listening. And goodbye. Goodbye, night. Bye. <laughs>